We will never run so far he cannot reach us. We will never sin so badly and live in a place so dark that he will not rescue us. And that's what it means to cultivate a relationship with the living God and to be in awe of him. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 103. So if you have your Bible, can you turn with me please to Psalm 103 as we read verses 1 to 5. And you'll find it on page 939, page 939 of the Church Bible. David, who was the king of Israel and author of many of the Psalms, begins Psalm 103 with these words. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy Word. Last week, I learned of a pastoral colleague who was friends with a man who had trouble holding down a job. And he had trouble holding down a job because he had an addiction to cocaine. And over the months, the pastor got to know him and prayed with him and tried to help him and advise him and counsel him. And after a period, he asked the man, what was the thing he needed most? And of course, he said, I need a job. And he said, well, I know some people who may be able to help you, but you have to promise that you will be committed to that job, you will turn up on time, you will work hard all day, and you will give your all to this job. And he promised he would. And for the first two weeks, everything went extremely well. But in the third week, it was a Monday evening, he fell off the wagon and spent the night shooting up cocaine. He was due to meet with a pastor for breakfast on the Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock. They had a quick breakfast on Tuesday morning, and then work at 8, and he didn't show up. And then at 7.15, the pastor became a little nervous and anxious. He phoned him on his cell phone, no response. He drove around to his house, and the man was trying to dilute what he'd taken in terms of cocaine the night before, and he was now trying to wash it out his system by drinking whiskey. Can you imagine how crazy that is to find yourself there? The pastor tried to sober him up, but outside was the company van, and the folks in the office were waiting on him arriving. So the pastor got into the van along with his friend. The pastor drove to 
the office. They got out. His immediate supervisor was a lady. She saw him pulling up in the van. It was now five minutes to eight. She was very concerned. She stepped out and said, what's going on? And the man looked at the pastor and he said, tell the truth. And he explained what had happened. And she reached out and she took him by the hand and she put her other hand on his shoulder and she said, I'm a recovering alcoholic and we are not ready to give up on you yet. And at that point, the owner of the company, realizing something was going down in the parking lot, stepped outside. She paused, prayed with him, and praised that God would give him the strength and enabling grace to conquer his addiction. And she said, I'm sending you home. I'm going to drive you home. I'll bring the van back. You need to sleep. And I expect to see you first thing in the morning at 7.30 so we can deal with this and deal with this once and for all. He was expecting judgment, and he received mercy and grace. That's the kind of individual who could write Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. It was written by David. It's one of the high water marks of the book of the Psalms. And David is writing from personal experience because he knows what it means for God to break into his life in a spectacular fashion and deal with the messiness and the challenges and the difficulties of everyday life. And David, looking back on his own life, writes in a manner that is convicting, insightful, cogent, and entirely irresistible the further and further you get into this psalm. David is writing from personal experience. Five or six years ago, we spent several Sunday mornings looking at the life of David now, as I hear myself saying that, we probably should go back and study his life again. And during one of those Sundays, I read to you a quote from the back page of a book written by Chuck Swindoll, who's just an outstanding preacher and one of the great leaders of the faith in the 20th and yet still the 21st century. He must be now in his 80s. And he wrote these words relating to David. David was an extraordinary individual, intelligent, handsome, a poet, a musician, a warrior, an administrator, and a king. Still today, David would be, would be considered Israel's greatest king. He had the ability to inspire, equip, and bring focus and direction to his nation like no other leader. And yet, he struggled with purity, integrity, and authenticity. He was gripped by destructive passions, rocked by family chaos, personal tragedy, and motivated at times by political expediency. 
God, however, refused to give up on David. He restored his soul, renewed this dysfunctional prodigal who ultimately became known as a man after God's own heart. And that's why David was able to talk about what it means to genuinely, sincerely cultivate the heart and mind and soul into a deeper relationship with God Himself. When David was at his lowest point, he was involved in an adulterous affair, and he conspired with others to take the life of the husband of the lady he was having the affair with. He stooped to deception, manipulation, cruelty. His character was blasted almost irretrievably. His personal peace was gone. His relationship with God was in tatters. The foundation of his kingdom was in peril. And God refused to give up on David. And so, when he writes, praise the Lord, O my soul, he knows the reality of what he's writing about. He's experienced the outrageous, abundant love of God that will not give up on us, that will not abandon us. This is a spectacular psalm. It's written almost like a personal journal, almost like a prayer. This is not a psalm for a congregation to sing at the temple. Almost none of it refers to anyone else. It is simply David reflecting on his love and his relationship with God. And he writes of God in some spectacular ways. David, of course, like us, knew God in all of His glory and wonder, transcendent in majesty, yet imminent in love and grace, deeply personable, a God we're able to know and love and follow. And that's why David writes in the way he does. And David is in awe of God, in awe of God as he's writing these words. He's cultivating and growing and developing his heart passion for God. Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you were utterly and fully so captivated by the person and the presence of God Himself, that you were oblivious to everything else around you, and you were in awe of Him, in awe of Him, heart, mind, soul, soaring heavenwards, and in absolute awe of Him. If you are sensing and feeling what that means, this is a psalm for you, written for you. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Every forgiven sin, everyone, 
every answered prayer, every moment when you were fearful and uncertain and didn't know which way to go, He was there with you, leading, guiding, directing, lavishing upon us His outrageous, abundant love. That's what David is writing about. Almost a year ago, we spent a Sunday morning looking at that word cultivate. What did it mean to cultivate that kind of relationship with God Himself? We learned back then that the word cultivate initially was associated with agriculture in the days of the pilgrims. And when they they thought about agriculture and culture, they would take a plot of land, they would work the land, they would till it, they would then water it, they would plant seeds, they would feed the crop until it grew, and then they would harvest it. And so, when we think of cultivate and culture, initially it was agriculture. 18th, 19th into the 20th century, that word culture became a much broader word. It was a word that meant, well, let me put it this way, it had a reference to education, literature, writing, creativity, to music. But it has the same basic meaning. The farmer would take the soil and cultivate it to produce. The poet, the hymn writer, anyone who writes a book for a living will tell you that they take individual letters the basics of language, and arrange them in a manner that captures our imagination, that grips the heart and mind and soul, and you can't wait to see what's coming next. I have one or two friends who are writers, and I'm amazed at their skill and ability in writing because I can't wait to turn the page and enjoy what they're saying next. Cogent, insightful, almost like the psalm or musicians. We have musicians who can take dots on a page and rearrange those dots in such a manner that when you hear that composition being played, the heart will soar, just soar. That's what it means to cultivate. Are you cultivating that awesome awareness of the love and grace of God, and you caught up with Him. On a Sunday morning, here at First Pres, we are quite intentional about our worship. We don't gather for worship on a Sunday morning because we have nothing else to do on a Sunday. Good night! It's a priority for us. It's the thing that's always on our schedule we would never wish to be anywhere else except right here, involved, engaged in corporate worship, worship that is thoroughly engaging with the living God, worship that not only is engaging but is also accessible, worship that lifts the heart and mind and soul. We are intentional about it. Worship for us is not so much an activity It is for us a central part of our 
identity. It's who we are. That's why we gather for worship. Now, let me pause for a second, if I may, and try and illustrate what I've been saying. About three years ago, we moved the bird feeder from the back of our garden to much closer to the house. And our squirrels love the bird feeder. Well, they loved it up to the point where I had a brainwave and covered the pole with Vaseline. And now I love it and they don't, because it's so much fun watching them out of the kitchen window trying to scramble up, and they can't. And we now see red cardinals and woodpeckers, all sorts of different bird life. And about 10 days after we moved the bird feeder, we discovered that over on the right-hand side, next to the bushes on the edge of the grass, was a rabbit. And it was a black rabbit, and it was nibbling away at the grass. And we thought, this is pretty good. We've got wildlife in the garden. The next week, I saw a hawk on the garden fence. And as you know, I'm something of an imbecile, and I didn't join the dots, and I thought, we're good at creating a space for wildlife. And I thought, this is wonderful. We've got a rabbit and all these birds and a hawk. And then I noticed where the hawk was sitting. And he wasn't sitting up high watching the garden as birds of prey normally do. He was sitting on the garden fence, and the garden fence was about five feet high. And he's sitting there looking around. We think, this is wonderful, a bird of prey in the garden. And then he's looking down, and he won't lift up his head. And we think, what have we planted that's attracted a hawk? The rabbit was at the base of the fence, and he was ready, getting ready to pounce. And she just sat there didn't move, didn't draw attention to herself. She just sat there. And as soon as we realized what was happening, I tried to get to the kitchen door, but Miss Ruth was there long before I was there. And she was out in the garden waving off the hawk, and he took off. We haven't seen him again. But we started feeding the bunny. And then the bunny needed a little more hay. And it needed a shelter because the winter was coming. And now the wee bunny lives in the garage. <laughs> and it has six square feet of fencing and a hutch with all the toys any rabbit would ever need. <laughs> I went to Lowe's and bought two long tubes of builder supplies, and I've made an assault course for the bunny. And the last thing I do at night is climb over the 24-inch fence with a small stool, and I will sit there, and she will come and run and sit at my feet, and I get to stroke her and talk to her and tickle her under the chin and ask her how her day has been. And she will just sit there as content as could be and I'll stroke just above her nose, and if I speak quietly and stroke her in the nose, eventually her eyes will close, and she'll drift off into a trance. As soon as I stop, 
She wakes up, and the ears come up, and she thinks, what's happened? Why have you stopped loving me? And in early August, we thought, she's kind of lonely. (laughs) She needs a little friend. And so we went to buy another bunny, a male. He's this size and this shape. He is fawn. She is black. He is the cutest thing on four legs, and he looks like Yoda from Star Wars. He has ears that stick out like this, and he is less than a year old, and he is full of life and activity, and he runs all over the place, and he loves to hop the fence in beside Wee Bunny. And so, we got a larger fence for him, and now none of the cars can get in the garage. (laughs) And they meet together, heads together at the fence, and they'll groom one another, and that's the only time he stands still. He runs around all over the place, and he's now taken last Wednesday, he jumped out of the new high fence into the garage, and he was lost for a couple of hours, and eventually we spotted the ears behind the box, and we rescued him and brought him back into his cage. And on Wednesday night, for the first time, he sat at my feet and allowed me to stroke him. And he still isn't ready to settle down. He'll wait for a couple of strokes, then he'll run away, and then he'll come back. But what he's discovered is this. There are people who love him and he doesn't have to run around wild. He doesn't have to have another adventure. He knows there are people who love him and will take care of him and feed him and nurture him and cultivate a relationship with him. And what a picture of the love God has for us, that when we come to him and sit at his feet He will stroke us and encourage us and strengthen us. And the days when we are so busy running around, we do not have 10 seconds to spend with Him. He will wrap us in His arms and draw us forward and out of our hearts and very soul. We cry, bless the Lord, O my soul and all my inmost being bless His holy name, because He will never give up on us. We will never run so far He cannot reach us. We will never sin so badly and live in a place so dark that He will not rescue us. And that's what it means to cultivate a relationship with the living God and to be in awe of Him. And dads, granddads, let me speak to you in the last 10 seconds of our study this morning. On Thursday, when you gather around the table and you have your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your friends and your family close by. And they will reach out their hands and ask that you say a blessing. Take those hands and be quiet. 
Don't mess it up with words. Just hold those hands and look around that table and take your time and meet them eye to eye and thank God for each one even if you're sitting beside Uncle Bob, who no one else wants to sit beside, sit there, take his hand, give thanks for him. And before you ask a blessing, read Psalm 103, 1 to 5. Make it your family prayer, this thanksgiving, because that's what it means to have an attitude of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving, to cultivate a relationship with the living God and be in awe of Him. That's why we have thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your consistent goodness and love and faithfulness towards us. Thank you that you never abandon us, never give up on us, draw us close, and will speak to our hearts and souls, sustaining within us a love for you. Father, we thank you for all of your grace towards us. Take us home this day rejoicing in you, and may we enjoy this Thanksgiving season because you are at the heart of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Music and Worship Arts Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Greenville presents Christmas at First, Sunday, December 4th at 6.30 p.m. in the Sanctuary, featuring soloists from the Metropolitan Opera, New York City Opera, and regional favorites, a full orchestra including members of the South Carolina Philharmonic, Greenville Symphony, and Alabama Symphony, and First Presbyterian Church's Children's, Youth, and Adult Choir. Admission is free and open to the public. For more details, visit firstpressgreenville.org.